0: So first of all, what do we mean by system leadership? Well to me it means that multiple organisations are trying to work together to achieve change and improvement at scale. So this is not about, you know, the very uh, valuable and important things that individual clinicians can do, clinical teams can do, teams within organisations or even organisations themselves. This is what what are the things that force you to have to work with partners across boundaries, particularly between commissioning and provision, but also perhaps between the NHS and other parts of the public sector and indeed between the NHS and the private sector. So usually this is about complex partnership working, where you have to work to get priorities aligned, to get incentives aligned, to get governance um, aligned. And uh, good partnership requires uh, sometimes the subordination of your own objectives in favour of those of others or in favour of those of the majority. So what I want to say up front about all of that is it is extraordinarily difficult to implement complex change across a system at pace it always has been difficult so anybody who says well you know all used to be okay when uh, X or Y or Z version of the NHS was here it used to be okay then and it's all too difficult now Um, that is not the case it's always been difficult it tends to be individuals and organizations that are held to account that's still the case now much of our accountability system is focused on organisations on services and then on individuals, our accountability systems are not focused on um, systems, so people are not incentivised or rewarded very well to work across those boundaries which are so essential for improving services to patients. Organisational interests are often very difficult to align. And if we're honest, um, professional interests are often difficult to align as well, even though all of us would say we're here for the patient. Actually, the reality is it's quite difficult sometimes to align the interests and objectives of different professions. And collaboration can be a slow and complex process. And it can be a weak model in terms of organizational form. It can be very weak in the face of uh, difficult, conflicted discussions. As soon as there's a conflict about it, especially if that conflict is exposed in the public domain or in the political uh, arena, people will very quickly go back into the place where they're comfortable and where they know uh, that they're going to get support. So I'd say up front that system leadership is difficult. It has always been difficult. I want to argue that it's more uh, difficult now than ever, but it's not the case that it used to be all straightforward and now it isn't. Why is it important? Well, I hope all of you would accept that there are wholly unacceptable variations in um, access to services, in outcomes that we deliver for patients, and in their experience of our services. And we are at risk at the moment of those standards declining, uh, frankly, across all three of those dimensions. The financial and workforce challenges are overwhelming already in some places and look set to get worse um, across the board Uh, resources are poorly distributed uh, both in terms of capital financial capital and revenue but also in terms of some of our more specialized workforce capability as well and worst of all uh, in some places the poorest people with the poorest health status and get the poorest access to what then turns out to be some of the weakest services that we provide thus exacerbating The problems that they face especially when you think about the fragmentation of many public services not just health and social care but housing transport education and other services as well so i don't think you have to work out a proof to say that those problems can't be tackled by organisations working on their own. Those problems can only be tackled by organisations working together. And that's especially true if you look at uh, the people who consume the biggest proportion of our resources. So people with multiple long-term conditions who require all of the parts of their care pathway uh, to work effectively together to be supported to stay well, to offer care closer to home wherever that's possible and to prevent repeated admissions to hospital when that's not the best possible place for people to be cared for and in particular uh, to encourage and maintain independence which repeated admissions to hospital usually doesn't. Many NHS organisations are failing at the moment on a number of uh, parameters, particularly financially, and so if we're going to do something in order to create a service that is sustainable for the future and will meet the needs of that sort of group of population, then change at pace is needed. And yet, in many organisations, if you look at the pace at which it is possible uh, for them to take forward change with partners, it is pitifully slow. I'm sure that each and every one of you in the room has been involved in something where you felt this change is really needed, we really need to work together on it, we've got to find a way of getting more streamlined process, we've got to find a way of overcoming the opposition of A or B or C, and then you go through another round of programme board meetings or whatever it is that you have in terms of some sort of quasi-governance locally and find that actually some bit of what you thought was agreed has slipped back again. And you've got another month's round of uh, discussion to go before you can make any progress. So. I'm sure that all of you will have experienced that sense of frustration that you cannot just take charge of it and get momentum about at the back of it. So one of the things that I think is interesting to think about and perhaps for us to discuss later is, you know, if everybody's agreed about what's right for patients, how come it's so difficult to do it? Well, let's think of some examples where people have made progress and also some examples perhaps where you haven't and see whether there are things that we could put in place that would overcome some of those barriers. So, as I say, it's always been difficult uh, to achieve. Why? Number one, um, it's personal for people, isn't it? That health services are very personal for people I would love you know a neurosurgical unit in my backyard just in case you know it's a member of my family that gets run over and you know provided there was a full team sitting there 24-7 that would be great everybody wants everything nearby everybody wants access to absolutely everything um, at all times of the day or night and if you threaten that or if you threaten to change something that people have relied on even if you can produce evidence that shows that the services perhaps aren't as high quality as they might be you'll find um, powerful and vocal opposition. The good side of that is we are involved in something that people really care about. You know, we're not selling widgets. We're involved in something that people really genuinely care deeply about. And if that um, passion can be harnessed, as I think uh, can be shown in some changes that are around at the moment, certainly some that have been made, if you can harness that power and that commitment and that passion for services, it can be an extremely powerful motivator powerful professional interests um, it's an interesting business uh, the health Service unlike I think most others the frontline staff are the most highly educated and the most capable often of the people that you've got in your organization so in other businesses the frontline troops are not you know the most influential, the most well-educated, the most knowledgeable. They're not. The people in head office often are the people who are in that position. In our business, the people at the front line um, are the people who've got the most knowledge, the most experience, and often the most capability. And that's what needs to be harnessed. And yet, people exist in very firm uh, professional silos even now. The political exposure that comes with taking on any of this stuff, if you put yourself up to change services and to take forward any sort of controversial and contested change, you find yourself in a, a political arena that is ruthless at exposing uh, individual failure um, and creates very significant risks for people for their careers for their relationships all sorts of things end up uh, into the public domain it's a very very high risk business to start getting involved in leading controversial changes the systems that we have are complicated the resources available for this stuff often inadequate and uh, the data that's available to back it up the factual base for some of this actually is ropey uh, even now although I want to argue later on that it's getting much better and as all of you will know, the incentives insofar as they exist are aligned around individuals and around organisations. The incentives are not aligned around systems across organisational boundaries. So it's always been difficult. All of those things have always applied to an extent. I'd want to argue that it's even more difficult now. So I promise you that we'll get on to the positive bit sometime uh, soon. But <laughs> perhaps to make you feel a bit better if I tell you why I think it's more difficult now. And I say this from a perspective of having worked in this service for nearly 40 years okay so the situation that we have now is more complex and more demanding in terms of taking change forward than any that i've known um, in my career and i've been a chief executive for more than 20 years so you know i have seen 10 major national reorganizations so it's not as if i'm talking from a a poor basis of knowing the sort of things that have happened in the past and i really do think that what we've created now is a set of complex and ambiguous accountabilities which frankly as they stand are unworkable at scale they're not unworkable within individual organizations and many important changes go on there and important improvements go on there I'm not trying to in any sense say that you you cannot take change forward within an organization or within a department or within a team or on your own of course you can but for the sort of thing we want to talk about tonight what we've got is unworkable the origins of that go back to um, Andrew Lansley's arrival, in my opinion, where the nature of the change programme that he put in place was completely different than any other similar sort of nationally driven, politically driven uh, reorganisation. So he arrived known an awful lot. Most secretaries of state arrived completely ignorant. He had a perfectly formed plan. Most of them don't have any plan at all. He was insistent on implementing it in every possible regard from day one, at pace, at a ridiculous pace. Um, Most politicians take a bit of time to listen to what the professionals in front of them are saying. He didn't. right? So he hit the whole thing very, very quick and obviously came to a grinding halt because of the scale of the opposition to much of what he wanted to do. Um, if you remember the pause was followed by a very, very long time, a very long period of time during which all sorts of amendments, adjustments and all the rest of it were, were made to the point where we've now got an act that I don't think anybody could credibly explain to people in terms of the number of changes and amendments and so on that were made. So that sort of really quick start stop and then a really really slow progression towards the implementation of A set of incredibly complex changes, which few people uh, properly understood and many uh, still don't, including myself, left almost a three-year period with a massive loss of momentum and a massive uh, loss of capability, of talent and all that. She would say that, wouldn't she? But um, that three-year period, I think, was absolutely critical in terms of putting ourselves into a position where we could better handle the sorts of pressures that are in front of you today. So I think extended uncertainty took its toll, actually, on on what we were trying to do and what was being done in many places um, in the country. Uh, The complexity that's resulted is baffling. So if I just take London, which is the example that I know best, broadly speaking, there were seven commissioning bodies uh, in London before 2013. Uh, PCT clusters uh, uh, education and training and the health authority and that 7 translates to 74 now if you look at the number of different bodies so you multiply that up across the country and then think about the number of people who left you can see that what we've got is a very fragmented commissioning system and a very thin layer of um, talent across all of those uh, different components of the system as it now exists I think there's a paradox uh, in it, in that because uh, the national setup has very much been uh, created in uh, silos, it's ended up, I think, with people looking up more perhaps than they did in the past. So you know, if you're in trouble and you're in a provider that's not yet a foundation trust, why would you not look uh, upwards to the TDA? Because they're th- there to support you. It's their job to support you, not their job to support other parts of the system. If you're sitting in a CCG. Ultimately, if it's difficult locally, why wouldn't you look up to NHS England? So I think it's had a, a centralising effect, actually, and a disempowering effect on people. So I think if you take out the talent and strip that across a large number of organisations and think about the silo effect of all the different national and regional bodies, it's caused people to look up more uh, than they perhaps would have done in the past. And last point, um, a massively increased regulatory burden um, on services and on staff and not just talking about the CQC, I mean across the board the regulatory burden has increased um, dramatically. What's essential in these circumstances, in my opinion, and you can maybe challenge this uh, later on, is that to get complex changes forward where conflict is inherent in it, you need authority. You need authority that's commensurate with the scale of the change that you're trying to take forward. And to think otherwise, I think, is naive. So there's a huge amount of rhetoric around which goes, you know, things that are seen as bottom-up are good, and things that are seen as top-down are bad. And I think, personally, that's a pretty empty rhetoric. um, I think what you need is an appropriate level of authority, relevant authority uh, to the nature of the change that's being taken forward. The question is, how is that authority gathered and how is it exercised? Something that is seen as bottom-up or top-down in a sort of polarised sense, I think is not a credible analysis in terms of what's needed um, in today's health services. So if I think authority is important, what would I say is needed to Create it now. I should say nobody in their right mind would vote for another reorganisation. Hands up, those who'd like another reorganisation. After you know, um, nobody would like uh, to see that happen. You just you'd be mad to want to go through all of that all over again. Therefore, I think what we're faced with is how can we make the best of the situation and the setup that we've got. And I've said earlier that I think it's now impossible to see how the present setup can. Uh, deliver change at pace with accountability and so on. I want to try and say now what are some of the things then that we could do uh, that might make a difference and might make it possible to take complex change uh, forward even with um, all the difficulties that we're now struggling with. So things that I've learned, stuff what I've learned from uh, often things that have gone wrong. You learn a lot more, don't you, from things that went wrong than you do from the things that went swimmingly well. So what are the things that we could do or must do in order to get authority uh, at the back of complex um, system-wide changes? The first thing is the creation of a compelling case for change. If you cannot create a case for change that has absolute emotional resonance for people coupled with uh, the evidence and the facts to back it up, you are wasting your time trying to take something forward. And a number of times... Uh, In my old job and currently, I listen to people try and explain to me why it is that they're putting themselves through hell uh, in order to get a a change delivered, and yet the story doesn't have any um, conviction to it. It doesn't have a language that resonates. It does not compel people to take action, compel people to work across the boundaries of their organisations and out with partners and condemn them if they don't. And you have to get to that. So it's interesting that Mark's uh, sitting over there because I'm going to use a little story from uh, one time when I was working um, with Mark. So there's a massive difference. If you're going to try and argue for um, rationalisation of hospital services, investment in primary and community care, why are you doing that? You know, why are you doing it? If the answer comes back in language that goes, we are trying to improve the outcome for patients with long term conditions, right, which is one of the things you're trying to do—it's it, not—you're not, not going to get anywhere, right? One of the things that Mark very powerfully said once um, was, "We are cutting off the limbs of people with diabetes two hundred times unnecessarily." Okay. So, once you've said that, that there's a horror in that, all right? We are allowing that to happen, and we don't need to. If only we could get these services right, that needn't happen. So why would anybody argue with that? Everybody would feel ashamed of something like that. So my point about this is you have to get to the you have to get to the point where people feel ashamed about carrying on allowing something to happen. Because unless you can do that, you are not going to overcome the sorts of barriers and scrutiny and all the rest of it that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, we find it extremely difficult to do. Extremely difficult to do. Many people uh, describe a case for change to me, and they tell me how fantastically well they're doing on a whole load of things. That's great. Carry on. No message for change in that. They tell me how fantastically well they're doing despite all these difficulties fantastic carry on struggling with the difficulties you're doing better than the place up the road so we'll go and concentrate on them they find it almost impossible to say here's how we're letting our patients down Um, but to be honest unless you can get to that point you're not going to overcome the complexities that what that the organizational framework and all the rest of it now uh, imposes on us Second point, data and transparency. Now, I think we're doing a lot, lot better on that, a lot better on it. There's much more information in the public domain. Bruce Keogh done a fantastic job setting the trend there, but we've got to do a hell of a lot more. You think about the number of times that something that you've wanted to do has been watered down because people want to argue about uh, the detail at the back of the data and whether or not it completely adequately reflects what happens on a wet tuesday afternoon in august Fairly to notice that actually perfectly adequately represents the remaining days of the of the year Um, And I do think that for senior leaders in organisations, there is a strong case for publish and be damned, because as soon as you've done that, then people work hard to get the data good enough right, and you can make progress. I think there's often a good argument, risks and all for uh, publish and be damned. We still do not know, often, what are the drivers of a deficit. Commissioners will say it's all sitting in the provider. Uh, Providers will say it's because commissioners aren't giving us enough money. Uh, Getting to the bottom of what are the drivers for a deficit in the system is still a really difficult thing to do. So there's plenty more scope for getting effective data and transparency about that together. Third thing uh, I've learnt is you cannot uh, take changes of this type uh, forward if you try to do it through the bureaucrats. In the end, frankly, what it needs is doctors, and I say that knowing that there'll be some nurses um, and other clinical professionals in the room. I don't think doctors in themselves are sufficient, but they are essential. So my old boss, David Nicholson, used to have a fantastic question when going around talking to local systems about why they wanted, to, you know, want to take this fantastic change program forward and it's going to involve the closure of the following three small hospitals and everything is going to be, you know, centralized at UCLH down the road. he would say, "Okay, introduce me to the six doctors that are going to go on the telly and and say that this is the right thing to do for for patients. And it's a bit crude, but it actually is quite a differentiator. So in the end, um, doctors arguing a powerful case for change on the basis of both the evidence and uh, the emotional uh, resonance, I think, can overcome all the barriers that we otherwise put uh, in place. But they need support right, they need, um, they need support, they need resources, they need training, they need backup, they need a whole set of things which often, um, at the moment, they don't get, and often they are expected, as part of a change programme, to do the very things that they're weakest at, go and present a business case, you know, go and sit at endless health and wellbeing board meetings and answer questions, whatever it happens to be, often they're asked to do the things they're not best at. That said, I think um, we are blessed, actually, with the uh, nature of the clinicians that we've got in leadership roles right now, and I mean that in CCGs as well as in NHS trusts, I think we've got some fantastic uh, clinical leaders and what's more, we've got some fantastic emerging leaders, I'm bitterly disappointed that many of the programmes that were in place for the development of emerging clinical leaders are no longer being supported, I think it's a shocking uh, shame and I think we'll pay the price for that in the future, it was a trivial amount of money. Um, and we should try and do something uh, positive about that. On to the next uh, thing that I think is uh, important: resources. This is something that sound a bit trite: resources and um, priorities. Okay, we always do this stuff on a shoestring. Meetings are in the evenings, or they're at lunchtime, or you know, somebody's going to do it in their part time. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, changes of this sort of scale need dedicated time from leaders, Uh, they need proper program management, Uh, they need proper uh, well-resourced analysis to get the facts and expose them in ways that will withstand scrutiny, you need communications and engagement expertise, you need legal advice and other high quality professional advice. All of that together costs a lot of money. It takes up a huge amount of resource and I don't see any shortcut to that and I don't see any need to be ashamed about investing that sort of money because you're not going to deliver the change if you don't. What that means of course is you can't do it for everything. So uh, we need to be much better at setting priorities and then sticking with them. And our whole planning process is geared to saying you've got 360 priorities, you've got to do them all. And I think leaders in every organisation need to be much more rigid about, no, these are the things that we're going to concentrate on. These are what, this is why, and sticking with those. And the last thing, to be frank, I think we need, uh, otherwise you can't do it, is transitional funding. Um, I see no means of implementing some of the changes that are necessary without the resources to double run some services, to pump prime them, to tackle the capital redistribution problem um, that exists. I don't think it can be done like why finishing one Friday night on one model and starting on Monday morning with the new. It just can't be, can't be done. Fifth thing, last thing on this um, list is think about scale. Uh, and plan accordingly if you're thinking about a transformation program around acute services you need a population between 500,000 and a million Um, you cannot do it uh, at a minimal uh, local level many changes can be made locally uh, but the scale of transformation needed in the nhs requires ambition at scale and of course this exposes the problem that i described already around complexity so the rules that we have at the moment say that commissioners should lead Um, change, they should lead the consultation on change, it should be, it should happen as a consequence of a commissioner strategy. And yet, by and large, uh, the consequences of failure in planning are visited upon, well ultimately they're visited upon patients of course, but they're visited upon providers. Uh, So the people in the end who find it impossible to handle the consequences of failed planning are either primary care providers, secondary care providers, community providers, mental health providers. And those are the very organisations that are exhorted to lead across a system and yet they lack the authority to do so. So in me saying we've got to think about how you operate at scale, I say that uh, recognising that for individual organisations, it is extremely difficult to say we're going to tackle this at this scale uh, rather than at a local level. And conversely, uh, we find it almost uh, impossible to determine materiality so the number of change programs that I've been involved in where you end up with a program board where you need microphones because there's so many people in the room who need an involvement in it and who therefore need the ability to say yes or no to it. Everybody's next to something. Everybody's next to. Something. I used to think even when I was in London that pretty soon I'll be talking about you know toenail clippings in Torquay or somewhere, and I'm sure that's very important down there. But you carry on arguing about these things. We'll have everything, including the programme. So uh, defining materiality in terms of scale is really important, and we don't do that very well. We find it really hard to say you're not important enough to be at the table and actually sometimes in order to get the main act through um, that's what you have to do so what I want to come to now then if those are the sort of uh, you know things that I've learned that are difficult and challenging how what can we do then how can we lead uh, to make these changes uh, when the system appears to be constructed in a way that makes it ever more difficult First thing to say is I think there are many, many positive efforts afoot right now. I do not think it's all... Uh, doom and gloom. So I can point you to uh, CCGs who are really trying hard to work across uh, geographies, uh, who are bringing leadership forums uh, together to try to take uh, change forward at, at scale. Um, the AQUA project that's supported by the uh, King's Fund is one. Academic Health Science Networks across the country are doing the same. Uh, strategic planning groups, the same. So plenty of examples of commissioners recognising that they cannot deliver some of the change that's needed by continuing to work um, alone. I think it's a question about how much support they're provided with to do so and how they're then held to account, but I think there's plenty of good examples of where people are trying to do that. New organisational opportunities which essentially create opportunities for integration, either vertically along a care pathway approach uh, for patients or horizontally between different organisations or different Services um, which are similar, uh, with efforts to do so being recognised nationally. So not just people doing that and not being recognised, efforts to do that recognised nationally. For example, through the Vanguard and other programmes. The tripartite, as was becoming, I don't know what we're going to call it, bipartite. What is the name now for monitor and the TDA together and NHS? It used to be called a tripartite. Now there's only two or only going to be two, at reducing complexity significantly and reducing sources of um, conflict in terms of um, organisational. Incentives, and I genuinely think a real effort on Monitor and NHS England's part to collaborate at the top and work together. And you see that in the way in which the success regime, for example, is being is being led out. Devolution at scale to communities. So the work that's being done in Manchester, absolutely something to watch, uh, and see how far um, it can go. So that's about devolving responsibilities. Um, for planning health social care and other public services to a city um, and giving a timescale for producing a credible plan uh, that is at least uh, meaningful in a strategic sense you know not uh, produce your strategic plan and by the way you know show us in detail what year one of it is of it and do that next week and can we then map the trajectory for every day between now and and, you know, actually giving a group of organisations some freedom and some space to produce a strategic plan with an ultimate objective uh, in mind down the track. So plenty of things which are happening, no doubt you can tell me more, which show to me that that progress is being made, and that people are desperately trying to get over some of these hurdles. However, I would say I don't think it's being done quickly enough um, and I don't think it's being done with sufficient intent uh, against some of the uh, challenges that are there. So what things do we, do we need to do better on? What things need to be uh, dramatically improved? So, so the first is intervention to prevent failure so the success regime great that's now uh, getting off the ground Um, it is I think genuinely being led by the three organizations working together but my experience would be that intervention to prevent failure is often uh, too little and too late and the result of that is that systems often fail or certainly experience an unacceptable erosion in performance and in quality before people are willing to intervene and not only that often compromises are put forward about what needs to be done that purport to offer the full solution and everybody's hugely relieved that that has been put forward and so they back it Uh, And then it doesn't work. And what that does is to extend the period over which uh, an organisation or group of organisations failed. And I say that from personal experience of being involved in supporting such compromises and then regretting it, uh, bitterly regretting it um, afterwards. So I think that happens far too much. We've got to do much better at intervening assertively and effectively to prevent failure not let it happen and then um, back a compromise at worst or intervene in a in a weak and inadequate way second thing we absolutely have to tackle the bureaucracy that's built up around delivering change every single time any change programs made there's another layer of it added and none of the rest of it gets taken away so um, colleagues uh, in one part of the country added up that there were 200 different forms of assurance exerted on a change program that they were trying to take forward so to me what that says is a system that says yes when it means no you do not say yes we want to support you in this change and here's that you know assurance process number 197 if we can only pass that you know we'll be able then to say yes actually that is no so um, to me there's a Uh, a moment now where we should say we've got to strip this back uh, and stop doing it so if you had all the processes end to end right even if they were all done to the minimum possible time scale it still take two years to get from one end to the other if that's a change program like say the stroke program in London 400 people have died while you were doing that you know so that's what happened as a result of that delay And two years is nothing. You know, the changes in uh, north-central London, some of those took 20 years to get to the point. Well, during that time, it becomes, you know, a place that nobody wants to work. It becomes a place nobody wants to go as a patient. Uh, There's this erosion of quality and uh, sort of dragged out failure all because of this set of processes that actually don't work they do not protect the patient they don't protect the patient's interest not in my book i'm not arguing for no consultation i'm not arguing for no engagement with patients quite quite the opposite but i do think we've got to get to a point where if people put forward a credible case for change expressed in the way that i described backed up by the evidence with appropriate clinical leadership then what the national body should be doing is saying yes and meaning yes and putting leadership clout and money at the back of those changes not saying yes please can you pass the following 10 tests and then yes but can you pass another 10. Um, if the answer is no right uh, when and often frankly it is often the answer is going to be no uh, if the answer is no then let's say no and then let's deal with the consequences of having said no sometimes that's money sometimes uh, it's not actually sometimes it's not money uh, but sometimes it is uh, and obviously that makes it difficult but I think we would have done a lot better on some of the things that I've been involved in if people have been willing to say no up front rather than say yes and actually then mean no third thing more work needed much more work needed on incentives how are people rewarded how are organizations rewarded and incentivized to ensure that care pathways for patients is what prevails rather than their organization or their individual interests There are some new approaches to this. I think they're potentially very good. Look at some of the things around um, accountable care organisations. But I do think even with the devolution programme that we've failed yet to be bold enough um, on this and assertive enough about what needs to be done to incentivise and support uh, change. And certainly around individuals, I think very much more needs to be done. Very often, some of our best people are not in the most difficult jobs you get people applying for the most difficult jobs at too earlier stage in their career um, because we can't get the most experienced people into the most difficult jobs. So we then think, well, you know, X might be great and you know another couple of years so we're going to appoint X to the job, X then gets very little additional support and big surprise they quite often fail. So there are quite a lot of people who have failed in their careers unnecessarily because they've been put into jobs that are way beyond them and then not supported um, to take them forward. I think we need to do something about getting some of our best people into the most difficult jobs. And the last thing I want to say on this about what we should do better is the creation of a more supportive environment around people who are trying to take forward strategic uh, change this sounds a bit trite but we do not really support people to take risks and to innovate we sometimes find it difficult to differentiate the failure that often results from people trying to do difficult complex long-term things and not succeeding and failure that's derived from incompetence we sometimes deal with them as if they were the same and they're not they're completely different and the environment that we've got at the moment in terms of the way it provides support to people taking forward big change programs is a big encouragement actually for people to be timid and to keep their head below the parapet and to focus on short-term things they can do to focus on can they deliver a decent winter can they deliver to the end of the year can they get beyond this milestone or that milestone or the other milestone And if they do, then they live to fight another day. There are very few uh, rewards for saying, do you know what? I'm going to keep my eye on the long-term game here. And that's what we need people to be doing. So creating a supportive environment for people to take strategic change forward, and in particular, a supportive environment for clinical leaders to take uh, change forward, needs a heck of a lot more investment and support than it's had to date. So I want to bring this to an end um, at that point. So to summarise, I think a massive um, transformation effort is needed if the health and social care system or health and care system, I should say, is to meet the future needs of our population. It's needed quickly. Uh, many parts of our system are failing uh, at the moment, or at the very least, are in distress. It can't be achieved by individuals, however hard they are. It can't be achieved by organisations working alone. However important it is to have successful organisations, it can only be achieved across a system. System leadership remains complex, even more so, I'd argue, than in the past. It's poorly incentivised and poorly supported some great progress being made, and I mean that, some really great new approaches, new ideas with national support, which I think is critical. But we absolutely must improve the effective authority that we've got for change. Some of the ways that I've described could do that without implying an organisational upheaval. I don't think it needs um, an organisational change to create that authority, providing support for leaders which is sustained over time, not just three months or a turnaround director or whatever, actually support for leaders over an extended period of time, Um, provision of resources for uh, leaders to back up the amount of time and energy and uh, everything else that it takes to do this stuff and resources for transition and systems of accountability which are designed to reinforce and support strategic change rather than designed to reinforce short-term performance management which is what many of them are at the minute so it's obvious from from what i've said that there's a big onus on national leaders right to provide that environment and to create that infrastructure and to provide that sort of direction, of course there is, and I would um, say much of what I've said might be directed that way, but I genuinely believe it's possible for leaders at all levels to do something on each and every one of those headings. Now, you can come back and say, well, how the heck can I do A or B or C, but I do believe you can do something on each of those headings in your own right, in your team, in your organisation, and certainly across your local system. And I don't think that national direction alone, without that alignment of all our efforts, is going to succeed so i certainly can see those green shoots um, that i've described but on their own they're insufficient uh, without us all doing something on each of those fronts together so that'd be the point at which i'd leave it really which is there's a challenge to all of us it isn't just about national direction all of us can do something on each of those domains thanks very much